Well, wherever you might be, if you want to find your Bibles and turn to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And while you're doing that, when we are looking for health, there is one word that you're wanting to hear and certainly wanting to see, and that is the word thrive. Like, for instance, when there's a newborn baby, what you want to hear the medical staff saying is, that this baby is thriving, that all the signs of, of health are there, and they're going to be looking for them. But that's actually true at every stage of life, whether uh, you be a newborn or a, a little child, perhaps you're in elementary school, junior high, high school, young adult, middle age, senior adult. You, you want to see people thriving, and that's far more than just physical health, but you want them doing well spiritually and emotionally and relationally and intellectually, that they're involved in meaningful work and they're engaged, that they're growing, that there's vitality and there's life. And that's also true when it comes to like a business or a school, that they are fulfilling their mission, they're meeting objectives, the customers are being satisfied, stockholders are actually realizing gains, that there's health and vitality, that your workers and, your, and the people that, employ, that you employ There is a sense of motivation and the mission is being fulfilled, that they're growing together. That's really what you're looking for. You want them thriving. So we know what thriving looks like uh, when we look at humanity, we look at schools, businesses, but what does thriving look like in a local church? And I want you to know, this is something that is extremely important to me because I desperately want to be involved in a church that is thriving. And all of us at Fellowship Bible Church, I mean, this is our heartbeat. We want to know the vitality and the goodness and the strength of Jesus. So what does that look like? What does a healthy church need in order to thrive? And that's what we're going to look at today when you come to the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. And just to kind of give you a little background In the event that you think that, well, uh, this church must have everything going for it because it's in perfect circumstances. Actually, far be it from that. Let me just give you a little background of this church that had just gotten started there in Thessalonica. In there, they were existing, even though they were the kind of the capital in the Macedonian area, they existed under harsh and difficult circumstances. For instance, they were experiencing uh, in their culture and really throughout the Roman Empire widespread sexual immorality and promiscuity and homosexuality. The moral culture was continually unraveling. They had a justice system that sometimes failed. There was mob rule that influenced government decisions. There were high-level government leaders acting as if they were like little gods And they just lusted after raw power. And there was a culture that was growing increasingly hostile to Christianity. Sound familiar? That was the culture that existed in the first century. And this church was right there in the midst of it. Can a church really thrive in a chaotic and fallen climate? Whether back then, 2,000 years ago, Or in this very day, can a church thrive when it seems like everything's against it? And the answer to that question is absolutely yes. 
That's what we see happening here when you come to the book of First Thessalonians. Paul and his associates were there on the second missionary journey for actually a very brief period of time before they had to leave. Paul was so concerned about this young, fledgling church that had just gotten started, filled with these new believers, that once he got to Corinth, and he spent about 18 months in Corinth, he sent Timothy, his protege, a very trusted assistant, to go back to Thessalonica and find out how the church was doing in the midst of all the adversity and all the difficulties and challenges they were facing. When Timothy came back, he brought back this report, and you find Paul quickly writing a response, and that response is the letter of 1 Thessalonians. Far from the church capitulating, giving up, just amalgamating into the culture, giving up on Jesus, losing hope, this church was thriving, and that's what Paul addresses. So how does a church thrive in trying times? That's what we see. So 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Here we have the team, Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. You know, every time you run across the name Paul, what you want to think is this, God can change the hardest of hearts. And that's exactly what happened with him. And notice who he's writing to. He's writing to the church of the Thessalonians. The Greek word ekklesia means called out ones. You see, the church are those who have come to a life-saving, life-changing relationship with Jesus Christ, and they are called out from whatever they used to be a part of into relationship with Christ and his people. It's not that they're just called into relationship with Christ. Biblical Christianity is that you're called into relationship with Christ and his people. And that's what happened always in every New Testament church. When you came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, you quickly became part of a body of believers. And that's why he's writing to the church. You'll see this in every New Testament church. It is people that have come together from a wide variety of backgrounds, different economic levels, different experiences, Jew and Gentile, non-believing Jew. They weren't Jews, but Gentiles who had come out of paganism and now were believing in Christ. They're all brought together in one entity called the church. And there are local manifestations of Christ's church Everywhere the gospel goes forth. And notice what he says. He says, to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You see, this body of called out believers, this isn't like the Kiwanis Club or the Rotary Club. These are believers that are called out and united in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. In every New Testament letter that the Apostle Paul wrote, you will always find that he addresses the church in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're together. Jesus is not less than God the Father. He is co-equal. That's why you find them together. 
You see, the church are those who are in God the Father and in Christ Jesus. They are growing in this relationship with him. And it's really interesting when he highlights God the Father, that's speaking of God's intimacy, that he's personal, that he is one who has provided security and love. And then to refer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is really rather amazing because it describes Jesus as Lord, meaning he's the creator, he's the sovereign one. It speaks to him not only of his deity, but when he uses Jesus, it speaks to his humanity. Yahweh saves. And then Christ, or Messiah, speaks of his role. And it's really a rather amazing phrase when you consider he is Lord, absolutely God Almighty. He is truly human, using his human name, Jesus. And he came with the divine role, the Messiah, the anointed one, who came to take away the penalty of sin, the promised one who came to deliver. And that's who he says, we are in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's what the church is in Thessalonica. But what has happened over time, and especially in America, in kind of these modern times, we have a very different understanding of church. The church has almost become like a club to meet human needs. You identify with maybe certain set of traits or characteristics or identify with a certain group of people, but it's really about how the church can meet your needs. It's really, instead of a God-centered church, where it's all about God and the exaltation of God and Jesus Christ, it's really more anthropocentric, like, how can this church or this group meet my needs or my desires? And so what happens is oftentimes the church just becomes like another human institution. And I want you to know, God does not exist for the sake of the church. The church exists for the sake of God. It's all about him. And when we have a God-centered perspective on life and the church, all of a sudden, being a part of the local church takes on a whole new meaning. So instead of just like seeing the ministries of the church as like, well, what can I get out of it? Actually, we see ministries as an opportunity to serve Christ and to serve his people. Worship isn't so much like, well, do I get the right kind of feeling that I'm after? It all becomes more focused on, do I have an opportunity to lift up and exalt the name of Jesus and to praise and worship the living God? You, you actually make it a priority to gather together with other worshipers. You don't see like, oh, church is some sort of like going on Sunday morning. That's an inconvenience to my schedule. Or how can I maybe slip it in, but I've really got a lot more important things to do. Actually, it's an opportunity to declare with your time even that God is worthy of my worship. And it is a delight, a joy, and an honor to gather with his people and to worship him. And that's what is taking place here. He says to the church of the Thessalonians and God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. Grace, that is the spiritual riches that are found in relationship with Christ and peace. That sense of well-being, tranquility of the heart that comes from trusting God. You see, God provides grace 
not only to save us from our sins, but to strengthen us and sustain us. And one of the great gifts of God's grace is peace. He's the one who gives these things, not just at salvation. He gives them throughout life as we turn to him. Should you find yourself struggling or frustrated, going through difficulty and lacking peace, there's only one that can provide these, and that is God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. And so Paul writes, verse 2, we give thanks to God always for all of you, making mention of you in our prayers. Paul is going to talk about why he is so very thankful for what God is doing in the Thessalonians. You see, God, through Christ, is manifesting love, faith, and hope. Now, in order for you to experience true growth, thriving in God as an individual and collectively as a church, there's three must-haves that you've got to have. And he's going to list uh, what's taking place in the church in verse 3. But I want you to know there were, some, there were three things they had to have going in order for that to be reality. And that's true of our church as well. First of all, you've got to have humility. There has to be this ability to be teachable and humble before God. You can remember this principle. There is no spiritual maturity apart from humility. There's no spiritual maturity apart from humility. It just can't exist. You have to settle the lordship issue and submit yourself to God. Second uh, must-have for spiritual growth, and the Thessalonians had it, and that is fidelity. There was a trusting relationship with God. There was a pattern of putting their faith and depending upon him. And let me give you the third There is humility, fidelity, and intentionality. They were living and pursuing his kingdom and his righteousness. They weren't passive. They weren't just going with the flow. They were intentional. They were seeking God. They were walking with him with intentionality. And because they were, verse 3 was their reality. They were thriving. Look at these signs of life, verse 3. Paul says, you know, I'm so thankful. I I make mention of you in my prayers constantly, bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ and in the presence of our God and Father. Verse 3 is all the evidence that God was at work in their hearts. You know, it's kind of like the wind. You can't see the wind, right? But you can see the effects of the wind. You can see the wind blowing leaves and blowing branches. You can see dust that's being carried by the wind. That's similar to how we see God at work. You can't see God. But you can see God at work by how he develops and matures and the work he's doing in people's lives. And the three traits that he highlights are found here in verse 3. Three traits of a thriving church found in Thessalonica. The first one was they had a faith that works. You see that? He says, I'm constantly bearing in mind your 
work of faith. There was a sense of trust and dependence upon God, and God was at work, and you always have this, that faith produces works. In fact, James even said that, James chapter 2, verse 26. He says, for just as the body without the spirit is dead, so faith without works is dead. You can't have a a body uh, without a spirit that's alive. Neither can you have faith that doesn't produce work, that doesn't produce and manifest itself in how a person functions. And that's exactly what they were seeing. God was at work in their lives. It was their faith that was shaping their understanding, their comprehension. It was faith in God and his word that was starting to shape their beliefs, their attitudes, their values. Their convictions were developing, and because their convictions were developing, they had a character and they had conduct that reflected this growth of faith in their lives. And that's how it works. God gives faith, and faith produces works, and our faith grows as we exercise it. Faith is really kind of like a muscle. If you want to build muscle, okay, if that was one of your New Year's resolutions, you're going to have to work out, right? You're going to have to do some flexing and lifting because the only way you're going to get stronger is if you exercise. The same is true when it comes to our faith. We learn to depend upon God. And it starts small, but we continue to rely and depend upon God in this relationship that we have with Christ. And that's what was happening in the church. It wasn't just the individual's. But they were doing this together. And really, we are better together. Ministry and community. And that is why fellowship thrives. We have believers who are working together in teams, ministry in community. And the life of Christ is being manifested through faith that works. And so what we want to do is ask God, what what are my next steps? What are my next steps in faith, personally? Perhaps one of the works of faith is that you need to forgive someone. You need to trust God to be able to release that issue. Perhaps there's some sort of lie that you've been believing, or you just can't seem to get over this particular matter. What we want to do is ask God for the faith to trust him and the faith to move forward. But that's on an individual letter level. But actually what we want to do this is even collectively, where we are making kingdom investments. We're discipling, we're serving, we're giving, we're looking for opportunities to express our faith. We are growing together. A work of faith is anything that you do because of your relationship with Christ. And because these people at Thessalonica were in the Lord Jesus Christ, they were in God the Father, they had a faith that works. It was a sign of life. But there is a second uh, trait that is identified with a thriving church, and that is that they had a love that labors. And that's what Paul says in verse 3. He says, I'm constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and your labor of love. You see, their love prompted them to labor. And this actually has the idea of working to a point of even exhaustion. You see, 
Love, the word love being used here, is to put another's interests before your own. It's to seek the highest good of an individual. Whether or not uh, they like it or receive it or appreciate it, to love like this, to love like God, is to put another's interests before your own. And it denotes kind of a self-giving, um, personal commitment, even if it's not reciprocated or it's not even appreciated. You love and you give yourself to others. You are willing to labor in your love. And so it's this love of God that produces a love for his kingdom, a love for truth, holiness, a love to serve others because you've got a love for people. And that's one of the things that you see here at Fellowship. There are people that love and are willing to labor in their love. Because, friends, it's not always easy. Sometimes it's a challenge or it's, it's difficult. And it's easy to give up, right? But when you have Christ at work in your heart, you're seeing the opportunity to love even to the point of laboring. And so I just want to ask, are you willing to labor at, in your love? Romans chapter 12, verse 10, kind of takes on a whole new meaning when you start to see what a thriving church looks like. And that says this, be devoted to one another in brotherly love. Give preference to one another in honor. You're devoted in brotherly love, that family love. You care for one another. You realize that we are in one body. We're brothers and sisters together. But you also will give preference to one another in honor. You set aside your desires, your so-called rights, and what you want to do is to express and extend love to others. And that's what they were doing. It was it's going to take each of us and all of us listening, looking to encourage, seeking to help, and living for the glory of God. And friends, that's what was happening in Thessalonica. They were thriving. They had a faith that works. They had a love that labors. And notice also what he points out in verse 3. They had a hope that endures. You see that? He says, I'm constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. Steadfastness of hope, it's the quality and character that does not allow someone to surrender to circumstances or to succumb under trial. And he says, you have the ability to persevere. God is working this, but it's not that you're just persevering, but that you're doing so with hope. It's that confident expectation it's always looking to the future. It believes that God is able to fulfill his will. He can change the hardest heart. He is the one who gives strength to persevere, to endure, to be steadfast. He says, you've got that kind of hope. And by the way, when we're going through the difficult times of life, don't you find that intimacy with God oftentimes occurs, especially those just sweet times, when you're brought to a place where it's just really you and him. You see, when we're going through life, if you're like me, you've got daily drama 
every single day you're going to have issues that are discouraging or something's going to come up that's like, okay, okay, how are we going to handle this? But there's just also difficulties in life and perhaps you're even dealing with some significant discouragement. What we need is God to cultivate a hope that endures. And that's exactly what he does through relationship with Christ. It's interesting, uh, recent archaeology in the ruins of Thessalonica have unearthed a tombstone and written in Greek was this word, no hope. Two words in English, no hope. Yet, in the midst of this city, there were men and women, boys and girls, coming to understand not only their sinfulness and how they'd missed the mark in terms of relationship with God, but had come to a place where they were trusting in Christ and they were now known for their steadfastness of hope. It's not like they had all the issues worked out. They weren't facing any difficulties. All the difficult circumstances went away. No, actually in the midst of them, they had a hope that perseveres and endures. How is that even possible? It's because God was at work in their midst. There's an eminent Victorian physicist by the name of Michael Faraday. I know if you've uh, taken physics or you've studied like his work in electromagneticism or electrochemistry, uh, he really was a leader and brought a lot of advancement in these fields. One of the things that was um, really uh, highlighted by this man's life is not that he was just a brilliant scientist, but that he had a profound faith in Jesus Christ. In fact, he found absolutely no conflict whatsoever between his vibrant faith in Christ and his, all of his activities as a scientist and a philosopher. How he saw it is that he was studying the laws of nature and he was learning about God just the same way as he studied the Bible and learned the laws of God. And he was just through discovery, he was writing what he was seeing and he was putting these things together. There was a strong sense of unity of God and nature that pervaded his life and his work. When Michael Faraday was on his deathbed, um, somebody came and visited him who chided him and asked him this question. So, where are your speculations now, Michael? And some of, some of Michael Faraday's final words were these in response to that question. Speculations? I have none. I am resting on certainties. I know whom I have believed, and I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've entrusted to him. And he quoted 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. You see, hope, a hope that perseveres, it's one of those inspiring characteristics of relationship with Christ. And friends, you want... You want love that labors? You want a faith that works? You want hope that perseveres? You cannot manufacture these. It's not, well, I've just got to have that mindset. These are rooted in our relationship with Christ. Do you see how that verse ends? He says, I'm constantly bearing in mind your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord 
Jesus Christ in the presence of our God and Father. It's, what he's saying is that Jesus is bringing all of this fruit to bear. And he's doing so in the very presence of the Father who loves us intimately. All of this to the glory of God. And so then Paul writes, he says, Knowing brethren, beloved by God, his choice of you. Do you see that unity and the warmth? It's all of you together. You who are in Christ, you who believe in Christ, you're united with others. You are in the church. You're not separated from the church. You're not an individual that just, oh, I'll just do my own program. You're not isolated with just a small little group of folks, but you are in the church collectively. You identify with Christ and you identify with his people. And it's really interesting. He says, knowing brethren, you see that? Beloved by God, dearly loved by God, his choice of you. God's choice is rooted in his love. And here we have this doctrine of election, which really refers to how that God is the one who makes a choice of an individual or a group for a specific purpose and destiny. And he's saying all of these manifestations, these signs of life, this thriving love, faith, hope, why this is all evidence because of God's choice of you. And that's how it works. You and I, we were spiritually dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive together in Christ. God's choice is rooted in his love. Now, how did Paul know that they had been chosen by God? How did he know that? Simply, he saw the work of God being manifested in their lives. There was a faith that works. There was a love that labors. And there was a hope that perseveres. You see, those whom God chooses, he changes. Those whom God chooses, he changes. I mean, that's what Jesus said. Remember John chapter 15, verse 16? Jesus said this, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you would go and bear fruit and that your fruit would remain. You see, God does his work. He changes our hearts so that we will bear fruit. And so, friends, this was the past reality for the Thessalonians, but this is our present pursuit. This is what a thriving church looks like. And so this is why we gather together for worship, why we are growing in groups, why we are serving in teams, and why we are intentionally looking to make disciples at every age. Because a church that is in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ, as we are abiding in him, we are thriving. And that's what it looks like. And the vision of Fellowship Bible Church is this, that we are growing deep and we are reaching out. We are growing deep in our relationship with Christ, individually and collectively as a church. And we're reaching out, certainly individually, wherever God has us, but collectively as a church. It is our identity. The health of a church is determined by the spiritual health of its people. So let's ask God, God, what are our next steps? How is it 
that you are looking for us to take the next step of faith. Ask him right now, what is that next step of faith for you? How is it that we could grow in our love, that our love could even be described as a love that labors? And then think of hope. How is it that God could increase our hope so that we're focused less on our circumstances and more on Christ, our victor, our strength, our Lord? So I would like to ask, what will be your story and really what will be our story? Are we going to be just surviving or thriving? Really, the answer comes to our focus. Are we going to continue to focus as a church in God the Father and in the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, 2020 is over. That story's been written. 2021, it's just getting started, and the script is just being written. So let us do this. Let us seek God in earnest, both individually and collectively together. When you pray, whether you're praying for me or each other or for yourself, pray for this. God, would you give me a faith that works? Would you help me to grow in my love where I'm even willing to labor? And God, would you help me to persevere in hope and help me to encourage others in this? And when you see people, those are the sort of things you want to pray for. Certainly their physical well-being, yes. But even more importantly, the well-being of their soul. And the health of a church is determined by the spiritual health of its people. And friends, when we live to the glory of God with these three signs of life, we can't help but to thrive to the glory of God. And that is our vision. Let's pray. Lord.